DJ, it's a big night tonight. It doesn't get any bigger in Cabland than it does tonight with hashtag DWP. But before we get to the guest of honor, let's talk about my brother from another who was just educating, regulating, even bifurcating. My man, Money Nathan. What's going on, brother? Hey, it's good to be here. Good to see everybody in the chat. Uh, speaking of bifurcating, we bifurcated the show today, which is amazing, and I love it. We've never done it before, and that's what we're about. We're doing new stuff today, and I'm very excited about it. Super excited to have Diana back with us to chat about her recent book and what's going on in her life, uh, upcoming talks, all kinds of stuff. We're really going to get into it. A lot of questions. I've been bombarded by questions from the community I won't be able to get to them all, but we're going to do our best. And the only way we know how. Hey, and you know what? My co-conspirator and fun, interesting, and entertaining UAP talk. Uh, don't forget Franklin. We got Franklin. Uh, I've got uh, our, our uh, cast member that is from the UK. We got to get his questions in for Dr. Pasolka. So don't nobody let me forget that. Uh, let's uh, go now to our paragon of uh, psychedelic and psychic virtue right here. Debs, how you doing, homegirl? I'm so happy to be here, and I just cannot wait for all the women power that will be coming forth today. <laughs> we, are, we are also so happy that you're here, Deb. So, um, and we decided uh, that, that we were going to bring on... Um, also, let's not forget Julie's question. Julie has a brilliant question. Julie is our chat uh, moderator. She has a brilliant question for Dr. Pasolka. I was just loving it. So, uh, but this is a, a homegirl, not only of cab who has both been on the show has co-hosted with us also, uh, hosted, uh, Dr. Pasolka. And that is the host of, um, uh, Mer <laughs> hold on Mer Meredith for real. That's the name, right? A lot. It's a lot to say. Yeah. Meredith for real. I mean, there's just so many syllables and that's what makes it hard. You know, Meredith Hackwith. And then you say that and people are like, oh, Gesundheit, you know, <laughs> my homegirl from Pensacola. I'm used to it. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. Meredith for Rizzle. It is so good to have you on. She, uh, for those of you that are in the UFO world, uh, Meredith interviews people about all kinds of different subjects, but I believe she's done six or seven, maybe episodes about UAP, which is how I discovered her. And she is a phenomenal interviewer. So please go and check out her channel. Uh, Nathan. So in getting uh, prepared for this, I actually did contact the Vatican uh, to find out a little bit about uh, uh, Dr. Pasolka's trip over there with Tyler and I asked him, you know, I said, hey, you know, uh, uh, father, you know, how was it? Uh, had you guys like, he said, oh, Tyler, uh, he's not even allowed to use uh, Il Bagno in the Vaticani without the doctor, our, as you say in America, our home girl, <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Dr. Pasulka. And I said, yeah, that's what I thought. I mean, she's she's the horsepower. Yes, yeah, she is the legend. Yes. So um, I, I had no doubt, man, that she had the horsepower to get in. Otherwise, you know, Tyler wouldn't have got a country mile. Back. from those archives so uh luckily uh they have a great friendship i'm sure that uh, she learns a lot from him as well 
So, uh, yeah, she decided to come and party with us again tonight after last time. Shocking, shocking. Mm-hmm. She is the author of the book called Encounters. Uh, all of us are reading that book except Meredith, who we gave 24 hours notice for this. But <laughs> she's going to read it. She listened to a lot of Dr. <laughs> content today. I spent time with Diana all day today. She just doesn't know it. So I listened yes. to all like four, four interviews that she did. <laughs> and we we totally dropped a bomb on you. But uh, without further ado, uh, please being on the professor from UNC Charlotte in religious studies. Party people, get the popcorn butter off your hands and put them together for Dr. Diana Pasoka. Hashtag DWP. Hey, Can hey. I get it? Amen. Amen. <laughs> I can never, ever live up to your introductions, DJ. <laughs> oh, man, you're even greater than any introduction I can do. So thank you so much for uh, coming back to hang out with us. Yeah, it's great to see everyone. It's great to see you, Meredith. It's great to see you, Nathan. And Deb, it's great to see you. Yeah, Welcome and uh, Leah show. Primetime, by the way, is moving cross-country uh, with her new husband. And that is the reason she's not here. We all know the stress of moving. It's so much fun. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And especially cross country. I've done that. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, don't, I can't even count how many times I've moved. I think it's like 15 uh, <laughs> with the military. But anyway, um, Dr. Pasolka, um, we, we, you know, we don't want to open with a really hard question. So we'll save what your uh, favorite potato chips are until later um, in the show. Uh, that one will we'll get- good. Because we want you in that data set with Jeff Kripal, Mike Masters, and all the other PhDs. Gary Nolan actually answered this question and see how you guys all synthesize in terms of potato chips. But um, Got it. So, <laughs> so, so we're going to throw softball at you to start off with before we pass it to Money Nathan. Um, so um, I'd like to find out a little bit in terms of you know how, how you see this. So in terms of the entity, you being a, a not only a professor of religious studies and, and specializing in Catholicism, but you're also a practicing Catholic. So in terms of the entity that you uh, would refer to as God, did, did that entity create all that we see in terms of the phenomenon, these non-human intelligences that you've been studying for some time? Okay. Yeah. That's, that's like a really easy question. <laughs> and, um, by the way, call me Diana. Um, Diana. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. So, all right. So that's, um, the entity that I call God. Um, well, that's a complicated question to ask somebody who's been studying it forever. It seems, um, the, you know, the topic of theology, uh, I would think that the entity that is what I would refer to as, you know, goodness, truth, beauty, um, righteousness would, would, uh, would be the creator of, of, uh, if, if it's what we're dealing with is this non-human intelligence. Yes, I think so. I think that that entity would have created everything that is definitely. Thank you so much for answering that. I was really curious what you were going to say about that. And um, thank you. Uh, let me pass you over <laughs> yeah, to the capable yeah. uh, hands of money, Nathan. Awesome. Diana, great to have you with us. Uh, I got bombarded from the internet when, when they found out we were having you on the show. It's uh, It was really 
exciting. I spent all day in conversation with several folks about things that they wanted to ask you. And so I want to start with some things that um, I think will help folks that are really interested in what you've been studying and, and your analysis. Um, I'm going to put something on screen. Maybe you can kind of walk us through this a little bit. So I put this together today as a, ah, as a way the to yeah. the cave, right? You know, <laughs> the allegory. Yeah. yeah. So we've got, a, right. uh, we've got the allegory yeah. <laughs> here, and we've got some different players that that are on the on the screen. Um, and I'm going to kind of zoom in a little bit. Hopefully this works. So kind of outside the cave, my understanding is what we have is like reality as it really is, or what we might call the phenomenon. It's projecting yeah. through forward. And, and you allude to the fact that, you know, kind of recently you've determined there are these sort of puppet masters. They're the... They're almost the, like, like the jailers, maybe another term for them, uh, who sort of keep mm -hmm. uh, the rest of us in a sort of chained in the cave, or, or they're the ones performing the puppet show. And then the ones who are observing the puppet show are kind of, you know, the prisoners, the everyday kind of people. Then there are the folks in the Invisible College who are pretty much in that group <laughs> as well, but they're also kind of looking back towards the phenomena. They, they realize there's something kind of behind them, but they can't quite penetrate the veil. And then you have these experiencers or what we might call contactees who've who've been sort of interrupted by the phenomena or they become initiates, initiates of the phenomena. They've pierced the veil to a certain degree and can kind of see or glimpse what it actually is. Um, so that's a really, really, I mean, I just put this together today, a very rough kind of breakdown of the allegory. And the question I get the most, uh, so thanks for indulging me on that. The question I get the most though is, about these puppet master people. So first of all, do I have yeah. this category sort of correct? And then secondly, people want to know, what do these people believe about the phenomena? Yeah, Nathan. Um, so amazing, this graphic. <laughs> so, okay, so this is this is really uh, fascinating. So let me, let me talk a little bit about my so I do talk about the allegory of the cave a lot. I think everybody knows that who listens to me just a little bit. And I'm I'm not sure that I would make a this kind of uh correlation. Okay, so let me give you a little bit about about what I how I see this the allegory of the cave, which occurs in Plato's Republic, Plato being uh, one of the Western philosophers um, that's best known in the most, okay, the person who's a philosopher, he's, whose work is best known by most people in the Western tradition, Plato and Socrates, uh, roughly lives four, 450 before the Common Era, so 2,500 years ago, so a long time ago. And, um, and he's basically this philosopher who's, um, you know, his teacher, Socrates, and he's Socrates is this guy. They live in Athens, uh, which was a quote unquote democracy. It was it was a democracy, except it didn't include women, slaves, you know, so it was like a democracy of, of these guys, of Athenians, Athenian citizens. Um, but so Socrates is actually a really charismatic teacher and he, he didn't write anything. He, he actually was somewhat against writing and um, he'd go around and he'd talk to people about things like truth, beauty, um, and he'd ask politicians specifically what they, you know, what they thought about love or what they knew about truth. And they would talk to him and he would then keep questioning them because he was trying to, you know, 
get to the bottom of it. But what he found was that no one knew really what these were. So um, so he angered a lot of the politicians, but he really uh, put on fire the young people. So the young people really enjoyed Socrates. And so um, sadly, Socrates was killed by his own government for doing this. And what they called him was an atheist, which was interesting because he talked a lot about the good as something like God. So what he thought of like, you could, I'm paraphrasing, but he talked about the soul and things like that. So it was far from being atheistic as we would term it, but he was, he was killed. So Plato then at some point writes this, um, the Republic, which is, is this book that asks this question, can there be a just society? Like what will a just society look like? And so they, he, and um, so he puts his characters are his brother, Glacon and Socrates, and it's a dialogue. And in the dialogue, chapter after chapter after chapter, they have these various scenarios about what the good life would look like and what a just society would be, but they could never come to an agreement about it. And they, they, you know, suggest something, well, the just society would have this, people would be equal and this would happen and then they would say nah nah that's that can't happen that can't happen and so at the end basically Socrates says well you know what I think I think the world is like this and he proposes what we see here which is the um the allegory of the cave um so what you have here is the phenomenon uh in the allegory Socrates would call this the sun and mm -hmm. the good and that when the people escape the people being all of us, when we escape from the cave, we leave and we go up and we see the good. We actually see the sun and it hurts our eyes because we've been in this cave. So the sun is the analogy to this goodness that we then say, oh, there's a goodness out here. And we're like, we have to go back and tell our friends. So we go back into the cave and our friends say we're crazy. And sometimes they even want to kill us because they, they think that our eyes have been ruined because we got outside the cave. So um, I, I think what happened after American Cosmic was that I realized that, that the puppet masters were actually something real. <laughs> they weren't. So I asked a lot of my friends who are philosophers and I said, what do you think about Plato actually talking about these puppet masters, the ones who actually tie us up in the cave? And they all said the same thing. They all said, Oh, that's just a rhetorical device. He wasn't really serious that there are these puppet masters that are doing this. But I actually met people who controlled the narrative um, for us. And um, and so controlling the narrative was something that these people actually did do. And so I saw them as literal, as you know, so I started to read Allegory of the Cave again, and I started to perceive that. That, yeah, you know, this fits. Um, now, the phenomena, the phenomena, I'm not sure we can equate it with this thing called the good. Um, so that's the only thing I would change about, about your representation. Um, the invisible college are the people who recognize the puppet masters for sure. Um, and they are people who are trying to get a read on the thing that we call the UFO. And they've been trying to do this for 40 odd years, right? 75 years. Let's just get real. 75 years. Okay. A lot of them, you know, and um, <clears throat> this has been going on in the United States, at least a long time. 
So that's what I would say. I would say that um, that Plato was actually trying to give us an out uh, of you know of the cave, and the the way out was basically a type of spirituality, which was engaging with your friends who are outside the cave about what is happening and then the good, you know, because once they're out of the cave, they actually see goodness and they practice it. But I want to stress that it's not an individual thing that once you're out of the cave, you're with some, you're with your friends, you're with people. So you can't engage in this, this conversation about the good without a conversation partner. So it, 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 it's an intrinsically something that's not an individualistic type of framework, uh, but it's it's an out for those who want it. So that's what he presented. I heard, that was a really long answer to your question. No, no, thank you so much. Um, I could go on a whole show with this, so I'm, but I'm not because I've got other panelists here who want to ask you these questions. So maybe we'll dip back into it later. But thank you for for taking time to answer that. Yeah, thanks for making that graphic. That's really cool. <laughs> that that is money, Nathan, right there. Uh, Going the extra mile. Debs. Yeah, so my question is actually a little connected um, to the cave. <laughs> it's the the beings that in mythology and religious texts and history, one of whom you have referenced recently, Prometheus, who have historically oh, yeah, yeah. who have historically been trying to rescue people from their lack of knowledge, help humans, and then get punished for it. Um I, my question is, do you think that that's now happening with non-human intelligence? Are people attributing the same thing to them? Are they trying to do something to help humanity, getting the credit for that and maybe ultimately being punished? Like, I don't know. But do you think that that is continuing in the new narrative? Yeah, I think so. When I When I first became aware of the programs, which... I didn't have names for. So we have to now understand where we're at. So post 2021, after the Pentagon report comes out and says that they have been indeed studying uh, and they, you know, UFOs and they have, they do have these programs. They do have special access programs. Um, David Grush comes out and talks about, you know, what's going on. We have to understand that when, when my book came out, American Cosmic, None of this was the case. So nobody had the language then. I didn't have the language myself, but that's exactly what I stumbled upon by accident in a sense. Um, I stumbled upon the, an SAP, um, a crash retrieval site, um, you know, people who were in the programs. And to me, without that language, I saw this in the language of mythology as the, pro the seemingly, you know, this mythology of Prometheus giving human beings, the fire, giving human beings the technology. Um, this has been going on forever. Almost every culture has their own form of a Prometheus myth of a god or deity giving knowledge to human beings. And so I felt like I was, I was literally in that mythology again. And people like Gary Nolan, you know, they were, they were there and that they called this place the donation site. The crash retrieval site is the donation site for Gary and the people who are doing the, this type of um, work with crash retrieval parts. So, so yes, I definitely think that. I do think the myth changes though. And do I think that people get punished for it? Heck yeah. <laughs> people absolutely do get punished for this. I think yeah. we have a long tradition of that. 
Yeah, it's uh, and and I think that is part of their sort of consternation and uh, difficulty in wanting to talk about it. Is there are so many avenues of of uh, retribution that can you know from a legal standpoint, from a moral standpoint, from a lack of trust government standpoint that I think they're trying as like hell to avoid all that. I don't know if they'll be able to. Meredith. Yeah. If I can say something. Um, so I was just at the, the Seoul Conference, Gary Nolan's foundation at Stanford last weekend. And every single person on the first day, I was one of the speakers on the first day, almost, almost the last speaker, every single person from Avi Loeb to uh, Beatrice, um, everyone basically started by talking about the pushback they get and, you know, the borders on hate and that borders, you know, that's just nasty. Everyone did. And so when it came time for me to give my talk, I had to bring it up. I had to say, okay, I now feel like, I feel like I'm in good company, like, because I've been doing this and a lot of times I know I'm not doing it alone. I know other researchers get pushback too. And I know a lot of people are giving like David Grush pushback. Um, but I didn't understand that every single person who was doing this work was getting it almost to, to the same extent that I was getting it. And that was helpful. I had to say that was, it was a validating experience. You know, from a, a tactical standpoint, if you're trying to, intimidate somebody in the way that if you were to go all the way back to the men in black era and some of the Roswell residents and so forth is that you have to make that person fear for their life in order for them yeah. to keep their mate. You have somebody who probably has multiple shotguns and guns in their house. And, and then you come up to the door and you say, you know what, I can, I can get, and D David said this in, in his most recent interview with Joe Rogan said that we can get to you anywhere. And that's the kind of fear well, there's an administrative way to do that, which is what you're hearing from Avi Loeb and some of the others that uh, that that it's being done with words. Uh, but it it it's a mirror image of what these men in black types did to to make people who find themselves pretty durable folks to feel afraid for their life or their loved ones. So, Meredith, that's right. Yeah. I wanted to ask about the stories that you talk about in your new book. Um because it was more, you included more of the, um, well, encounters, right, of, of different people. But from what I hear about the book writing process, there's, you start with this much, and you end up with this much, right? And so I wanted to hear from yes. you if you had any encounters that didn't make the book, but you considered honorable mentions that you might want to share with us. Yeah, um, James Landoli, um, uh, he, his, I really wanted him to be in the book. He has, uh, you know, he's the experiencer who has engaging the phenomena and, uh, I've known him for a long, long time, actually. Well, since I, let's see, probably since, um, maybe 2017 and I know of his experiences, which are incredible. And he's also very typical of, uh, of certain experiencers in that he's a really good person. Um, and, um, and so I really wanted to share his story and I interviewed him and I wrote, you know, I wrote up something, uh, but you know, a book is a process of editing, you know, so there's a lot of things that get edited out. 
Um, so his was edited out and I'm not entirely sure, you know, the reasons. Uh, so it's, it's this work that an uh, author does when they, they're not self-publishing and they're publishing with a press where it's kind of like this back and forth. So his was, uh, was really fascinating. And um, some people who was, who were just too on the inside, I guess, and they were, you know, I wanted this book to not have that many uh, pseudonyms, like, you know, American Cosmic, I needed to use pseudonyms. And the climate's different so that I don't have to necessarily, but there are people who will not talk unless I, I, you know, put them under a pseudonym. And, and I would like to have had it be different because their, their experiences are really very interesting. In fact, their whole lives are really interesting. And I think that people, you know, don't know about those. Um, so I, I would have wanted to include them too, but no, I couldn't, I didn't do that either. So there were people like that. Um, so there's only one pseudonym in the book, even though um, Simone did at first say, no, I just want to be Simone, but she's okay with being known as uh, Simone Plante. And she is a AI specialist and a quantum computing specialist. So I'm not familiar with James's story, so I apologize. I'm kind of on the outskirts of the UFO community. Oh, that's <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry if everyone else is like, oh, oh my God, you're, you already oh. know. I don't know. <sighs> well, you know, I don't know if I should share it because I know that he's writing a book about it. And I feel like I might, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't want to give it away if he's if he's doing that. So, but I can guarantee that it is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. We, we can introduce you to James, and actually, he's a fascinating guy. You could actually see Diana. You look at a little bit of an emotional response talking about James, than talking about necessarily some of these other people, and I could tell that there's a bond there uh, between you, um, and as as there is with you know all of us <laughs> with James. So yet. Yeah, Meredith, yeah. we, we, we can set that up. He does. Ha he's a multiple experiencer in, let's say, multiple genres of the phenomenon that I think uh, most of the panel here believe are all connected now that we might have wanted to separate out. So, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah, connect you James, up with James. James, yeah, it's true. You, you should definitely interview him. He's he's um, he has an amazing breadth of knowledge about religion and spirituality. And he's really articulate in making the connections between his own experiences and leaving the cave. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Well, I like yeah. my, every time I'm the guest, a guest host on the show, I have notes, you know, whether it's like, okay, ontological shock, Nathan taught me that one, or, you know, <laughs> different uh, books to read and people to research. So thank you everyone for that. We love having you, Meredith. You know that, right? So. I mean, it's just a pleasure to have you on here. Um, Debs is going to read uh, Julie's question. Julie is our chat moderator, and uh, Debs believed that you answered part of it, but she's going to try to get in the second part. So go ahead, ma'am. Right. So um, there were a lot of questions about, you know, the control of the UFO narrative, and Jules mm -hmm. had a question about that external light source, which you sort of answered, and also this part, which is, also, in regards to the people who tied us up inside the cave, she mentioned it on tow, are they overseers put in place by an entity or entities from beyond the cave? 
Okay, so um, yeah, I don't, I don't exactly know. I do know that the people who I met, and I talk, I, I start to really get into this in chapter eight in Encounters, where I talk about the children of the invisibles. The people I met were people. Um, they had extraordinary skills, and they had, a, they lived extraordinary lives, and they, and these skills were. The kind that you know that are developed in the uh, Stargate uh, program, um, which I think the government focuses on the nuts and bolts of the phenomena, but I think actually they do that because what's really going on is not nuts and bolts. Um, so, and you know they want to keep the you know our focus on on lit on the stuff that's not actually happening. So this, the stuff that I found that was very disturbing to me, um, which is why I wrote chapter eight, uh, these are human beings, these are people. Um, and they work, uh, they work invisibly. Uh oh. And you can ask questions, you can ask more questions about that if you want. Uh, and I focused on a friend of mine who is the child of a person in the space, uh, the space program, but it was, it was an unignored, I think it was a classified program and it was, it happened many years ago, but she grew up as the child of a, of a, a person who was in that, in the space program, a scientist in the space program. Um, but it was, a, it seems like a classified program and her childhood was incredibly non it wasn't ordinary by any means and so i met a lot of these people these kids who now are now grown up and there are also some who are actually children and to me it seemed pretty wrong you know to do to to do this to people who weren't who had no choice it's one thing to be recruited into a program it's another thing to be a child and be born into something like that environment and to never know that you that that's you know, what you're living. Um, so I met, I met those people. Wow. That was born into one of those programs. They were, yeah, born into the program. Their parent was in the program. So of course they're born into it, but what happens to them is they have to live within the constraints that their parent has agreed to be a part of, but the child had no, like my friend, Patty, she really had no idea to her. It was normal. She didn't know it was not normal until she actually grew up and she had friends and her friends were like, what you did, you had, what happened to you? You had to do what? Um, so, you know, and, and I knew her, I've known her a good portion of my life. Um, ever since I've been a professor here and I, you know, this is the first, I, I became a professor before I had my PhD here. So I've known her, uh, since my children were born and, um, and she's pre-UFO and post-UFO. So once I, I'd known her and she would say certain things to me that her father worked in what she called like the secret space program. And this is pre-UFO. And I thought she was kind of crazy. I was like, but she's not, she's really smart. She's a professor of philosophy and she's, you know, she, she was recruited by the NSA and all these things that are not normal for professors, she would be doing. And I always thought it was interesting, but we became really good friends, but she would say these things. And I thought, why would she even say that? Like the secret space program, ha, ha, ha. That's what I thought. And then 
of course, I was after American Cosmic, I met people in those programs. And I recognized that Patty was a child that had been brought up with a father who was in one of the programs. And that shows you how long these programs have been around. She's now retired. I heard a very obscure interview with a young man whose mom was a colleague of Bob Lazar uh, at that facility at Area 51 and the, the demise of his mother when she died and what happened with her personal effects. Um, he, he teared up and cried during this interview, and um, I nearly did as well. It's very, very touching and um, um, just related to what you said is a little bit of a stitch back. There, a lot of people know Richard Budd on on uh, UFO Twitter, and he's talked about some admin, basically what David talked about: administrative terrorism and intimidation of people that are in these programs uh, to keep their mouth shut and and not talk. And uh, it, it can get uh, way beyond immoral, and certainly probably past uh, illegal at certain points. Um, so our uh, cabbie from the UK, Frank, the UFO thinker. Um, says, uh, how do you think the advancement of technology has and will change our interactions with religion, each other, and the UFO phenomenon? And he he puts in parenthetical, yes, I know you could definitely write a whole book on that one. <laughs> so he, he realizes that. But basically, uh, how do you think, and he's probably talking about AI and all these technological advancements, do you think mm -hmm. it will um, affect mm -hmm. uh, interactions with religion and the phenomenon, et cetera? Definitely. Um, and it is already. So I do think that first, it's true that people, so, all right. So how do I think, let me break it down because it is a big question. So let me just start by saying that, um, of course, technology already has shifted relationships between people and families. And um, especially for I've been a professor since the advent of the smartphone. Um, the smartphone, you know, became ubiquitous. Everybody got one in probably 2009, 2010. And so I saw my students in the hallways at my university, walking down the hallways. And whereas before they would gather around and talk to each other, now every single one of them is basically, you know, like this, right? So Wow. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, and it is, of course, the, it's all, everyone knows that it's addictive and it causes dopamine and, you know, physiological addictions. Uh, so we already know that it's shifting, it's changing the ways in which our brains are forming and, um, and it changes the amount of gray matter in the, the brain. So a lot of this is done by colleagues like at Duke University who study these effects. Um, a lot of this these effects are known by people in AI, like Simone. Uh, she's, I think, chapter 10 in my book, um, Moon Girl. And so um, she's, she's, uh, she's been doing this for 20 years or so. All right. So in terms of um, the religion, uh, I think that the way I perceive religion, okay, here's, here's an idea. <clears throat> You have to give me some, um, you have to give me some slack and I'll tell you why, because not only am I talking about religion, which I think a lot of people, you know, have preconceptions about and 
So I have to kind of, you know, help with the preconceptions, but I'm also talking about UFOs, <laughs> which a lot of people also have preconceptions with. So I have these really difficult, you know, ideas that once you look into them, you see that they're not at all what, what you think they are. Like we have a lot of stereotypes about religion and then we have a lot of stereotypes about UFOs and it's kind of like my job right now to kind of like clean up both. Right. And it's, it's actually not that easy. So, um, so for religion, let's think about it. Like in a sense, let's take away your own preconception that your religion is the one truth religion, right? Everybody believes that. about. Oh, they can't do that. <laughs> uh, right, 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 right. Mine okay. is right. And let's, right, right. And let's think of religion as though, because it seems to, it hasn't gone away, right? So a lot of people who studied religion, oh, I'd say 70 years ago said, now as people become more educated, religion's going to go away, okay? But it hasn't gone away. Most people in the world are religious. Most people in the world are religious. We're talking about billions of people. Okay, so if we think about religion like a, um, like a language, because there are theories about language. How did we acquire language? Humans, okay? Some people think that once you get a group of humans together and they start like interacting, language just shows up. It's like an emergent phenomenon. It appears to be that religion or spirituality, to me, appears to be an emergent phenomenon. As long as you get a group of human beings together, something's going to like emerge that appears to look like religion where whether it's a spirituality some type of spirituality like what i think is happening now with the ufo i think it's a, a new emergent religion is what i think it is hmm. and um or you know it's it's something like what we see in these traditional religions uh one thing is for sure we are definitely at a crossroads in terms of um, belief in UFOs and UFOs functioning religious-like. So uh, to me, it's 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 a, a new form of religion. It's an emergent form of religion made possible through our technologies. Now and I know why you... Pretty... Go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. Go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. I said too much there. I was going to say that's why you and Leah Prime get along so well. She has the same hi hypothesis. Um, I kind of thought, and I think Nathan and I thought that there was a lot of different traditions and, uh, Nathan probably used better words that are involved in religion that weren't present in coming to UFO Twitter and just turning your phone on and starting to scroll. But there's a lot of different things involved in religion, like, you know, communion and baptism and all these kinds of things that, that don't exist in you, you followed you, but then you use the word emergent. So that means uh, could be coming. <laughs> Maybe you go to your UFO shaman and, you know, get right into the church. Um, so my next question for you was going to be, is Tyler actually Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick in real life? I'm just kidding. That was supposed to be fun. Man, nobody laughed. <laughs> Come on. Ask you. I, I thought it was a joke. Here. I was just Come about on, to guys. ask you. <laughs> The tough room. Jeez. Okay. No. Oh, yeah. I feel like Rodney Dangerfield all of a sudden. All right. <laughs> there's a blank look on your face, and the cabbies are totally quiet. <laughs> I was going to let that, that, right. that, that, that name. He's the, he's the Voldemort. Anti is that yeah, he's the Voldemort. He's the anti-Tyler. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're about 180 degrees. 
Oh my goodness, he's got to have a Voldemort costume over in his house. Or actually, he could go to Disney World and get one now at the uh, <laughs> Harry Potter exhibit. Um, so, Diana, um, in, in your value system, um, actually, you know what? Before I go there, I, I, I don't want to go back to that right now. I want to go to Christopher Mellon, and you retweeted that article. Um, and I'm curious what your thoughts were. I felt like it was a bit of a departure from some of his pre- previous articles, but I'm curious your take. Yeah, so um, he wrote, I mean, he had just come back from the Soul Conference where he gave pretty much a presentation that was, that looked like that article. It was a, it was a bit about, you know, and um, I thought it was good. I thought it was really interesting. It just laid out what, you know, I mean, it was a, I don't know if you, I haven't actually engaged on Twitter or social media about the conference because once I got back from the conference, it was Thanksgiving (laughs) and I have five kids. So, you know, I was doing that. So it wasn't, I had heard from people though, that a lot of people were talking about what happened at the conference. So I don't know how much was said. And I know that it hasn't, none of the uh, presentations have been out yet. So I know that. Um, And I don't know when they're coming out nor which ones are coming out, if all of them are or not. But I do know that the Schumer Amendment was retweeted by somebody, I know who, but I won't say, by somebody at the conference, um, which is funny in a sense. So it, you know, I mean, the, the things that were presented were the benefits of full disclosure. And I think that Also, you know, it wasn't just the benefits of full disclosure for us, for humans, like it's going to be good, basically, um, according to many people at the conference. Um, But it wasn't just that that was really interesting to me. It was all of the scientific um, and an observational data that was presented that showed beyond doubt what was happening with this topic and that a lot of people were, you know, part of my, my talk was that this is a a field where people, you know, it's like a fight club field where people aren't actually talking to each other. And once we get people talking to each other, which is actually what happened at that conference, it's explosive and unbelievable. And I just felt it. And it's, I don't think I'm even over it yet, frankly, to tell you the truth. It was, it was so incredibly, um, I think that, that Chris Mellon's uh, talk and also he kind of summed up uh, a lot of what was said at the conference. That's why I retweeted it because, you know, as you know, I'm, I tend to be, a loner, I guess you could call it in the field and kind of like in kind of peripheral to all the military stuff that's going on. Um, And I've also retweeted a couple of things about my dad when he, um, you know, he's passed on. But when I was a little kid, he used to tell us about he was on um, the ship called the bittersweet with his he was a sonar man. And he actually experienced um, uh, 
uh, USO. Um, but of course, we didn't know. We didn't know what it was at the time. But he told that story so many times in detail, how the wow. electricity went out and how, you know, he could see that it was this giant object at the bottom of the ocean and they couldn't move and they were all terrified. And, wow. you know, and then, um, you know, the Admiral Tim um, gets up Delegate. and basically. Yeah, he talks all about. And. I was so stunned because, you know, this is like a family history story. And so, yeah, so I guess I, uh, I'm just, uh, I was just stunned by the amount of data that had been collected by the various people in the room who, you know, were part of the military. So, um, so that was good for me. I think it was really good for me. Interesting. Yeah. I, I had, uh, I had some, some, different observations about his article, but uh, I got to get to my brother from another money, Nathan. Thanks, DJ. Wish we had a whole other hour. I've got so many questions. Um, I know. <laughs> yeah, so, we have 15 minutes. Yeah. I, I want to ask you this one. So it has to do with initiation and initiation by way of ritual, which is a way to sort of uh, reproduce the experience and then initiation by way of the direct experience so there's the there's the direct sort of um, you know maybe the Damascus Road experience for those who don't know that story you know you've got this person who's on this road and he has a vision uh, or the burning bush you know the, the direct experience of something ineffable but ritual is a way of reproducing that kind of experience for those who didn't have a direct experience and so I'm I'm been thinking about the, these concepts because. You know, most of the practitioners who try to engage with the phenomena via things like protocols or rituals are doing so as a means to kind of control the experience or harness the experience or or have the experience, have that ineffable moment. They're trying to tame what is basically something that is wild through that rit ritual activity um, and kind of exchanging something that is wild and real and, and raw for kind of a facsimile experience of it and you know do you feel that that that's a, a valid approach like we, we've always done this right religion is doing this uh it has always done, done this that it's like we're, we want to we want to share in the moment and we're afraid in a way to like be open to the experience of our, of our own or, or treat our own experience as valid so how do you kind of look, look at the, these things and, and the way that ritual plays a role versus the raw experience itself yeah, great question. I think the protocols, um, and I do teach about the protocols, I think they're pretty uh, important. And the protocols are the things like that Tyler would use, but I've gone in depth into those now and, and talked about them with say like Simone who practiced them her whole life too. And what the protocols do is they enable your body because remember our bodies are sensing instruments. Okay. So they, we're what 70 something percent water. So we conduct, uh, we're, you know, we're conduction, uh, our bodies conduct, what are they conducting? Okay. So what we're doing when we do the protocols is we're readying ourselves for, um, what people would have called inspiration or people call, um, you know, contact or something like that. I don't, I don't um, propose contact, by the way, reaching out. Um, but 
within the religious traditions, not only do you get the traditions like Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Christianity, teaching about these protocols and basically teaching people how to do them, but you also get a kind of a ready-made infrastructure of, oh, and this is what happens if you meet a demon. <laughs> oh, and this is what happens if you meet an angel, right? And these kinds of things. And sometimes those experiences are hard to adjudicate which is which, because I've, you know, if you look through the the Christian scriptures about like meeting angels, it's pretty terrifying. Okay. A lot of people get terrified um, by, by those experiences. So, um, so within those, so I don't think we should like just get rid of our religious uh, traditions. Our religious traditions are teaching us something about this phenomena, actually. And that's what I think is important. A lot of it has to do with ritual. So basically, when we go, say, to a temple or church, and we're there with other people, remember that the more people, the more conductive energy, the more conductive bodies you have. So the, so I don't know if any of you have been to like a concert and felt the palpable energy of not only the people, the people on stage and, you know, there's this give and take and, and there's almost like a, um, a feeling of, uh, of intensity, like a high even that people get from that. That's real, that it happens. So what people are doing then when they go to church and they do these rituals together is that they're engaging in a tradition where this is what I call emergence, where something greater than each of them appears. Okay. Something greater than each of the bodies appears. Um, and if they are all of the same mind that this is going to be like God, say they're Christians, um, you know, or, or if they're a Buddhist, this is going to be a Satori experience. Um, then most likely that's what's going to happen for them. Um, I don't know why. Okay, I'm not going to give you an answer about that because I don't know. But I can tell you that from studying this, you can see that these kinds of things happen. They even happen to people who don't want them to happen, who happen to just be a friend going to the event. Uh, this is what happened to Jeff Kripal. He's a professor at Rice University, and he was a graduate student, and he went to the Kali Durga Festival in India. Millions and millions of people at this festival in India, um, all there for Kali Durga, right, the goddess. And he was there just as a graduate student. He comes from a Catholic tradition. He even wanted to be a monk at some point, but he didn't. And he was in graduate school at the University of Chicago. And so he was there just to take data. And what happened to him was um, was called Shakti Put, which was basically he got the goddess came to him in his room and and basically shocked him and uh, literally and he thought he was having a heart attack. So he didn't even ask nor believe in that experience. But the collective energy of that event. OK, here's another story about that. Men, not many years ago, but hmm, maybe like three or four years ago, maybe actually five years ago. I can't remember. Um, probably five years ago, um, the the Pope came to Washington, D.C., okay? And I work with Sister Rose, a friend of mine, and she was the minister, the Catholic minister at my university. Total, like, by the way, good good person, good Catholic, totally not a believer in these experiences that people have. You would think that she would be, but she's not. She was a total rationalist. She just believed in doing good works. She did not believe in 
um, the energy of a holy person or anything like that. Probably didn't even believe that, you know, the Pope is holy too, to be honest. Okay. So, but she takes some students and they go to DC and as the Pope goes by, she got zapped with some that she called, she was so excited to tell me, but she said, Diana, you wouldn't believe it. I actually felt like I was being electrocuted by, you know, Pope when he went by, you know, and I thought it was funny. And I thought, well, yeah, so that's, that stuff actually does happen. Sister Rose, you know, and, um, but you know, it's not like the Pope is holy or not holy. I believe it has to do with the group uh, and their expectations even though she didn't expect it, uh, the, you know, she, she experienced it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, it, it, you, you're kind of touching on something that has been important to me as well. And that's that we are like in our academic means of studying things. It's very, there tends to be like a strong neutrality to that, like keeping it at arm's length. Whereas what you just described is it's a, it's a, it's a participatory kind of experience, the experience itself, you're involved in it. You you are part of the study. Whereas most of yeah. our means of knowledge now are very much trying to kind of keep it purely objective. And so I'm wondering if, if we have to sort of rethink our means of study as well and recognize that we are in fact part of the object of study. We, we and the object are connected. Yes, I think that's that's pretty key, or at least we have to take the lens. I actually did talk about this at the Soul Conference, and um, I didn't get to all of it because we had thirty minutes, and I I was I had said too much stuff beforehand, but I I had to rush through it. But basically, what I proposed was that it's the actual research, it's the type of research method that we tend to be outward about it and thinking that we are studying something, but actually we need to look at the research context. Because if you look at the way in which Tyler and I, we started the, you know, DJ started us off by talking about us at the Vatican, Tyler and I, and how I was the the one, you know, um, and <laughs> the legend. To pro yeah, that's right. And I'm like, make way, right? The, the complete opposite. It was the complete opposite. Um, but Let's put it this way, that what circumstances, by the way, my book had already been turned into the press. I thought I was done with it. So when I was at the Vatican, we were actually getting data about UAP, but I didn't, I hadn't planned on that to tell you the truth. That's not why we were there, but that's exactly what we did. And we got a lot and it was really interesting. And so what I said was, what kind of a research method allows for the accidents that sometimes, you know, a lot of human progress have been because of amazing accidents that scientists, hey, wow, you know, I fell asleep and this mold grew and now we have penicillin, you know, and things like that. So once we start to look at, and that's where I discussed that this phenomena looks like it's emergent because that's exactly how that last chapter of American Cosmic happened was we were at the Vatican, a few things happened that one would call meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. And then, you know, people that should never have worked together in the first place, a scholar of religion and a, a, a rocket scientist from the Space Force and an SAP program, you know, um, come together at the right place, at the right time, find all this data, boom. And that's just 
you can't make it up. Like you can't really like predict it, nor can you, you know, say, okay, you know, um, Whitley Strieber suggested at the conference, he said, we need to have these, you know, these kinds of these bullet points in place so that we can follow the method. And I said, you can't, not with this stuff, you really can't do that, you know, because it's only when I look back on what I did with say Gary Nolan and with Tyler that I can say something actually did happen. Some research happened and we got some interesting things, you know, products out of it. Um, but we sure didn't plan for it. It was, it was, it looked to be that it happened on its own. It, it almost seemed like there was an intelligence along the way that we were just parts, you know, there's very few people like Whitley that have had those prolific experiences that can divorce themselves from that to take a, you know, look at all these different approaches. I think I've heard one British guy uh, that uh, was a, a, sort of an abductee like like uh, like he was, and I, I messaged the cabbies right away, and I was like, wow, this guy really has a lot of different ways that he's willing to look at this and entertain it from an academic standpoint and also as somebody who was terrified and has been abducted. So, uh, but there's a rare, rare, rare folks. Um, Diana, if we could do a quick speed round just to get through Debs and uh, Meredith, and then I've got one final one. Then of course we have the potato chip question. Um, and oh, then yeah. we'll, we'll get you out of here. Okay. So let's look at this as a Deb loves speed rounds. Uh, she had so much success with Richard Doty like this. Uh, and by the way, we did entertain Jeff Kripal on the show and he was no pun intended. He was phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, he's hilarious. Okay. Uh, and by the way, we loved your conversation with James Madden. I mean, to see, uh, I think I speak for everybody to hear a philosophy professor and a religious professor and this just, just jamming. I mean, it was like two great guitar players, you know, it was like if, you know, Eric Clapton. Oh, sat thanks. Down with I had a Jimmy great Hendrix. time. Yeah. He's, he's great. Yeah. I like him. Yeah. So your and your concert analogy really resonates with me. We've brought that up on this show uh, on many occasions about what happens at a concert. Emotion is moved. Can that be created synthetically? Can the phenomenon, does the phenomenon want to, to have some of that to be able, that seems like it's unique to humans. Maybe it's not. I think it is, but I could be wrong. Anyway, let's go to Debs for her speed round. Meredith, I'll get one, and then we'll get to potato chips. Go ahead, please, Debs. Yeah, so I'm going to try to abbreviate what I wanted to say, but in your book, there are lots and lots of things for people to ponder, and I noticed a connection between two aspects of your book, and I wonder if you also noticed that connection. In the beginning, you talk about someone who is working on identifying the universal language um, sort mm -hmm. of a hidden cosmic language and trying to make it communicable for everybody. And near the end, you're talking about the oral tradition. And I wonder if you also had that aha moment and realized the connection between the two. Yes, I think that, um, I think it's really, so you're talking about Dr. Ea Whiteley. And by the way, you should have her on the show. She's fascinating. And um, her work is so amazing. So. She's a brilliant uh, pilot who is um, also a PhD and an astro. She's a PhD to, she does space psychology. She kind of forged that. Um, and she helps train astronauts and pilots for extreme environments. And um, she noted that with pilots and astronauts, a lot of their knowledge is pre-verbal. That is that it happens so fast 
that they're not able to articulate it. Okay. And so she's really, really good at identifying this, this type of language that is basically, um, we call it a language, but it's not a verbal language, but it's a, it's a language that nonetheless, a lot of us, some of us know. Okay. So Jose in my book also knows this language. He seems to have been born knowing the language and it's connected to our environment. Um, and so she's identifying it in the language of fin whales and um, certain insects. And what she's doing is she's creating, she's using technology to translate these into graphic images that also, um, also use utilizing sound. And so she's able to, um, she, what she wants to do is she wants to expose children to these languages so that when, so children can have a nation independent means of communication, uh, not only with their environment, but with each other. Um, and then at the end, um, where we're talking about, you know, what I'm doing is I'm talking about people who, you know, Len, who, who's had an ex experience that was well-documented in New York in the 1960s. Uh, it's in Jacques Vallée's book. And it shifted his reality. And so I, I talk about the arc of his spirituality. He was an atheist that became spiritual. And so I talk about his spirituality as a form of kind of an outcropping of this type of um, this language that we're discussing. So Deb, does that answer your question or do you have a more specific kind of like where I could answer, um, you know, the what the issue that you brought up? I, I just feel like the, the resonance may be a part of it, but I think that you um, touched on some other aspects of it, which was interesting. And I'll pass because I know we don't have yeah. a lot of time. <laughs> So. Yeah, I think that the book is is um, it, every chapter, in a sense, points to the same thing. Let's get to my homegirl, M.H.E., Meredith Hackwith Edwards. Diana, I really liked your um, the concert explanation also. Um, and just made me think of the, I have a Pentecostal background where two or more are gathered and how the, mm. the Bible talks about the power of two or more are gathered. And that's what I love. And I have always loved about the way that you tie your research in with like the everythingness of the world. How's that for a highbrow explanation? The everythingness. <laughs> um, but I, I do really respect your process as a researcher. And that's what I wanted to ask you about because you're so skilled at sifting through all the information and because UFO stuff has always had an element of entertainment tied to it. I wanted to ask you, what would be your advice to people for the average person without your research skills? How, how would you advise people sift the entertainment from the information when it comes to UFO stuff? Yes. So it's almost impossible to do that. Um, I think that, so I go back to Jacques Vallée. Because he says that, and I agree with him that, um, and by the way, this isn't just a feature of U UFO information. It's also a feature of religion, believe it or not. So a lot of times how we know about religion is through entertainment, if you think about it, right? So for Christians, you know, um, they, they have the kids Bible and then they see veggie tales or, you know, they, um, 
You, know? you just went up like five and- notches because you mentioned Veggie Tales. I'm not going <laughs> to sing the hairbrush song, but I'm just saying maybe like later we can do some Veggie Tale karaoke together or something. That's right. Yeah, there's that Christmas the special, right? eater on the, the show. Veggie <laughs> so um, you know, and then um, in other generations, it was like Moses and you know the Ten Commandments and that type of thing. So a lot of information that people get about religion, even Buddhism, is from TV movies you know, the internet, that kind of thing. Um, so it, it's the same thing with, with UFOs. So I think the best way to, to come to, um, well, there's always the people who you go back to, like one of the best books on the topic is Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia, where it's a 1968 book, but you read it and you feel like you're reading it and it was just written. So, you know, there's that. So, but also people have experiences and if you meet someone and they tell you about their experience, most likely they're not lying, right? So a lot of people don't want to be associated with having the experience. A lot of people have experiences in their families, right? And so I think that we can learn about it by, by people who we know who aren't out in media talking about it. Because a lot of what happens in media is the telephone game, you know, where it gets retold and retold and changes. Or... People are, are um, you know, they're, they're hoaxing things. You know, a lot of people hoax. We probably have more information about hoaxed. Bel- belief is initiated through hoaxes more than real, actual, unidentified mm-hmm. stuff, believe it or not. So I would say that um, first people like, you know, the work of Jacques Vallée. Um, and then, you know, because it's really a, the wild, wild west when you go onto social media and type in, you know, UFO, right? And you're going to get everything. And how are you, if you're new to the topic, how are you going to say, oh my gosh, you know? So it's a lot of people just say, I don't want anything to do with it because it's so confusing. If I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is, you know, people like Jacques Vallée, but also keeping it human, like going yeah. as great to the source yeah. as you can and ask the, maybe even ask the people around you, like, Hey, did, have you ever had an experience I, that I love? You couldn't have given me a more, um, perfect answer for that because to me, creating, making something more human is just such a, well, you know, humanity, it's, it's just <laughs> such a nice way to do things. So I love that answer. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Meredith is all kinds of awesome. Uh, two other things. So uh, Nathan, you used the word engaging in the phenomenon in the same sentence. You owe James $25. Please send him a check. It's true. Thank uh, you. And by the way, Nathan, uh, by, by the way, I don't know if you know, he has kind of a new show called Perturbations. There's a lot of religion. Uh, he's basically engaging back in his religious background. He also has a master's oh, yeah. in religion and went to That's seminary. Right. So um don't be surprised if you get contacted to be on that show. To speak let me be on that show. Awesome. Yeah. Wouldn't it? I would love, love to hear you and Nathan talk about religion for an hour. That would just be so dope. Um, so uh, for my final lightning, um, in your value system, Diana, um, would you attach the name angel or angelic entity to that, which is uploading th- that knowledge to Tyler that he is in turn um, healing, curing, uh, helping thousands of humans. What, what name would you attach to that entity? Right. So, you know, he had a change in how he perceived it too, through the writing of American cosmic, when we started 
doing, you know, working together, he definitely thought these were ETs, you know, off-planet entities. Um, and then as we kind of worked through this stuff, going to the Vatican, he began to understand it, especially as he was being exposed to people like Sir, Sister Maria of Agreda, the Spanish nun, who believed that she could go up on the wings of angels, kind of like on this craft and fly over earth and see it spinning. And, you know, we started to look at her records there at the Vatican. And he understood that um, what he had been doing, it was a tradition that people have been doing this. So he, he shifted his idea um, about these beings that he believed he was in touch with. Um, I don't actually, I couldn't actually say, I couldn't actually name what it is, but what I can say about what I think you're asking me and I could be wrong, <laughs> is that um, I think that there are various of these phenomena that people have contact with, and some are good, and some are not. And I think that um, we can learn from the religious traditions, the major religious traditions, about these, you know, because they have claimed contact with these kinds of things before. And I think that that's important to know. Um, so if you do have a religious tradition, dust it off and check it out and, you know, see, see, you know, what's there for you. If you happen to be Jewish or Christian, the Merkaba tradition is right there. You know, it's the whole tradition of getting in touch with, you know, basically angels and things like that. And it's nothing you, it's risky to do. And you do it in a, like, there's like a, uh, an initiation into it. And, and there's a whole lineage of tradition to do it. Uh, maybe St. Paul, actually, we started talking about him too. Maybe he had that experience and he, you know, he then spoke about it. Um, so, so, but you know, our religious traditions, go ahead. It's clearly something that wants to help humanity, though, if it's giving him this uploading this knowledge to him that maybe previously he wasn't in that field of endeavor. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with, the, uh, you know, with lots of, of people who work, say, in, um, you know, there's that mathematician Srinivas uh, Ramanujan. And same thing. I mean, he believed that the goddess Lakshmi was giving him his math calculations, whispering them in his ears. And, you know, and he didn't have to work to get them. They just kind of appeared. And, you know, this happened with Tyler too. They just appeared to him. So this is a mm. process that I think is really interesting. And sure. um, whether, you know, yeah, it does seem to be helpful. <laughs> I'm not yes. going to deny that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to call it though. I mean, you know, yeah. they call it, okay. you know, and what if I said, well, whatever, uh, Ramanujan, he called it Lakshmi, but it was actually this angel, right? Well, that doesn't no, yeah. seem right either, you know? <laughs> Whatever you would want to call it. I mean, there's no wrong, there's no, there's no wrong answer, right? I mean, like people say, what is big? Yeah. Oh yeah. What, like, I, no I hesitate answer, to, call, to call them. I, I look at it as a process that these mm -hmm. people are engaged in and I'm interested in studying that process. I guess that's okay. how I'd have to, have to talk. I mean, I think it's a helpful process, DJ. Like I'm going to say, this yeah. is where inspiration has has come in. This is what the ancient Greeks called literally to be inspired, right? Yeah, Absolutely. you don't want it to attach back. a name to it. It's like R2-D2. Yeah. They put him in that escape pod and 
I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So um, the book is called Encounters. Uh, We are reading it. It is really cool. It's really Diana. And look at the cover. Look at the colors. Even That's before you even open it. Um, There's a lot of interesting stories in there uh, from people who are experiencing the phenomenon through um, a lot of different ways. And that's kind of what makes it interesting. If it were just sort of like the same type of encounters over and over, it it wouldn't be as awesome. So um, I'll tell you what, uh, we really, really appreciate you coming on. like to get you, if you would, to just tell everybody, you know, where they can come and see you speak. You were just at the soul conference because you got soul. And, uh, (laughs) and uh, what else do you have coming up? Could you please uh, enlighten us on that? Sure. So um, there's a a conference coming up in New York City, and it's uh, kind of co-sponsored with Leslie Kane and um, Jay. um, James. And um, yeah, that's right. And James is part of it as well. And so I think it's December 9th. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. And so I'll be there. And then um, I'm going to be at this conference in Austin, Texas in March. And that's uh, the South by Southwest conference. It's a, it's a big technology conference. And I'm actually going to be talking about uh, spirituality, UFOs, and emergence there. And um, so those are the two, two main things that I'm doing. As some, some things, I'll believe me, I'll post them on Twitter and Instagram. It's at DW Pasolka. And those are the two that I have. So, um, yeah. So, and, and maybe even my website, dwpasolka.com. I'll post it there too. I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, like today I had two podcasts booked at the same time. I don't know how that happened, but. <laughs> yeah. How did that know. happen? <laughs> I know. I'm going to be your personal assistant. Uh, let's go with uh, Cabby goodbyes, beginning with Meredith, please. Thank you so much, Diana. It's so good to see you again. I'm so glad to uh, to be able to connect with you here with my amazing cab buddies. So thank you. Absolutely, Meredith. It's great to see you. Debs, my homegirl. Yeah, I want to thank you so much for not only educating people through your book, but just kind of putting some thinking caps on people, getting people to really look at this in a different way. Is I truly appreciate your books. I liked both of them quite a bit. Um, thank you for talking to us today. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Deb. You too. Yeah, we've had a blast with you. It's always a fun time talking with you. I get the sense that we're just getting started, that uh, this conversation is just continuing to, to bloom. And uh, you're going to have a lot of opportunities to, to talk and study this further. And we look forward to seeing what that uh, how that comes about. And the future books that you're writing, which I'm sure you've got some ideas bouncing around. Thanks, Nathan. It's always good to talk with you. So American Cosmic, if you're out there and you haven't, I recommend that you start with American Cosmic and it's going to kind of end off and then it's going to lead you into Encounters. And they were both awesome uh, books. One of my my uh, bosses uh, at, at my last uh, position with the other uh, organization that people don't like the air force where I worked, he was staunch Catholics. So of course I bought him uh, your, I bought him your, your first book, American cosmic uh, last year. So um, it, they're, they're both phenomenal. You're phenomenal. I, I, I hate that we have to use that word, but you are, you really are phenomenal. 
So, and we really do appreciate. Well, you are too, DJ, and so is Cab. Thank you. Thank you so much. The the kind words the, that you sent me on email when you know when I read that to the cabbies, uh, it really does mean a lot. And uh, you always you're part of Cab Fam, and you always will be. So, thank you very much. And um, on behalf of uh, Diana and Meredith, Debs, Nathan, this is DJ saying peace out, one love. We'll see you down the road. And we're always wondering what's up around the bend.